Hello, everybody. So happy you're here for another episode of Ride the Gray. You know, here at Ride the Gray, we are all about exploring different domains and examining topics and or ways of thinking that will challenge our own. So far on the show, we've explored the fields of motor learning, cognitive and sports psychology, and organizational leadership. Today, we're going to dive into a different type of ship, entrepreneurship. We're talking iterative mindset and design. If you're interested in learning how to more effectively and efficiently pivot, adapt, and innovate, this is the episode for you. We discuss why it's uncomfortable to change, yes, there's a neurological reason, and how to actually do so. So whether your team paralysis by analysis or team just do it, we think you might get something out of this conversation about the importance of getting your product or idea out into the world before you're quote unquote ready and how to do so using a process of small and frequent hypotheses and experiments. If you're ready to think like an entrepreneur, grab your coffee or tea and let's talk iterative mindset. Welcome to Ride the Gray, a podcast about lateral thinking in which we actively seek new ways to learn about complex and dynamic systems. Thanks for listening. Let's dive right in. You know, both of us are, are in these professions where we're always trying to improve our craft. And um, I don't know that I would have said, yes, we're always iterating. But without putting that term on there, we were always trying to get better. And uh, one of the things that we do is uh, listen to podcasts and read as much as we can. And recently, I came across a uh, podcast with Dr. Kyra Bobinette, and she was on um, a nutrition podcast talking about the behavior changes that lead to improving nutrition. So kind of just looking at like the human side of how do we, how do we make long-term change? How do we make lasting change? And, um, and she kept referring it to it as an iterative mindset. And uh, that just really kind of spoke to me because I think we're always trying to make these small changes, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I just think about, you know, our profession, our jobs, right? If if I could simplify it to kind of one sentence, what we do is well, we're really in the business of creating behavior change. And I think something that we'd probably agree on is that a lot of times what ends up happening is it's not that the problem is not a matter of knowing what to do with our athletes, but actually getting them to do it, right? And I think as humans in general, you know, what, what stops us, a lot of us know the right things to do. We know what we should eat. We know that we should exercise, you know, but what's that gap there that prevents us from actually taking action? You know, like things that come to mind for me and you can jump in here at any time are, Hey, I've always done it this way. I'm maybe afraid to fail or I don't know enough to get started. Um, the thing that also, I know that we've talked about is it's very costly to change in terms of like brain activity and how much it takes to do something that's uncomfortable or new. I want to actually go back to something that you said earlier, which is that we're fundamentally in the business of trying to change behavior. But, and I know your, your undergrad was what? Evolutionary anthropology. Okay. And so in mine was physical education, which is a little bit closer to what we do. I guess here's a fair question. Which one of us is had our undergrad in something that relates more to what we actually do now? Oh, putting me on the spot. Uh, I mean, 
I personally really liked the way that my undergrad was structured. I got to see a lot of different things, which actually sparked my interest in this whole idea of lateral thinking. Mm-hmm. I took classes in everything from primate sexual evolution to physics to black theater. I mean, it was all over the place, but I did end up having to explain to my parents what they were paying for. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's kind of my point is if, all right, so if you, if we would have said we are in the business of making people stronger and um, it was simply about the exercises that you chose, maybe we would say my undergrad was more uh, closely resembled what the job is. But what you said was that it was more almost a psychological responsibility, which would make it, I mean, is it fair to say maybe more of what you were studying was more relevant? Perhaps. I mean, I've always thought that, or I've always appreciated the part of our job, which is the human-human interaction a whole lot more than necessarily the sets and reps. And I think that's actually why we're doing the podcast that we're doing it. And we're not doing one on the best back squat, right? Mm-hmm. Or the the merits of velocity-based training, which nothing against those, but it is about human behavior and creating that lasting impact, right? Like that's really what inspires us to keep going. Yeah. So why, if, if we could get people to do, uh, the, the behaviors that would get the outcomes that we wanted, if we just set the conditions by micromanaging, by sending somebody to their house to wake them up at a certain time, do a bed check to make sure they're asleep by a certain time and do all of these things where we basically would treat them like a rat in a cage, why, why wouldn't we want to do it that way? If we could control the results? Well, I know as coaches, a lot of the times we do try to do it that way. We do try to control the results because it's much easier cognitively to see X causes Y you know, Z causes B, whatever the, the variables that you're controlling for. It's, we're trying to create um, a way of validating what we're doing because as humans, we need to be able to take something and show it to somebody else to prove that we have value and we provided value. I know as coaches, that's, I'm sure why we do the way we try to control programs and systems the way we do, but there's no learning there. And I think that's probably where you're getting to is for the athlete. When you're told you need to do this, 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 and this, your whole day scheduled out. Where's the choice? Where's the failure? Where's the learning that's happening? In the, in the brain, we know these different kind of divisions of the brain that says, Hey, this is kind of more of the primitive side that we'll see with, uh, even reptiles, that's just very like the ancient part of the brain that's always been there. And then here's the quote unquote newer part of the brain where, you know, we see prefrontal cortex and we see a lot more problem solving and what we would say is like uh, competitive advantages. The, we know the amygdala, we've probably talked about it even on this podcast before, is largely like this vigilant um, organ, this uh, system that is tied into our emotions and tied into like just us feeling a certain way and fight flight and freeze and all these different uh, responses that is trying to protect us. It's trying to 
know, is this a safe or is this a dangerous environment? So right in that general uh, neighborhood, we have this very specialized um, part of the brain called the habenula that looks a lot like, that acts a lot like the amygdala, but it's super specialized. And what it does is it, um, it is activated in response to a negative outcome that would lead to basically punishment, undesired outcome um, in response to that. And so if you have a lot of activity in that, you are super um, uh, sensitive and you, you are negatively uh, motivated to not experience pain or failure or um, negative outcomes. And, but what we've seen, uh, part of what this podcast is talking about is that we have variations of how different people will have different activating patterns around their habenula. So with people, with some people who seemed to be very uh, practicing on the edge of their abilities, people who were moving out into being innovators and entrepreneurs and people who were moving into these unknown spaces that they would uh, have a lower level of activation with their habenula, meaning they were less afraid to fail. They were, um, they didn't have the intensity of the experience that other people might feel that it was traumatizing um, when they didn't win or they failed and lost money. Um, which makes sense because if you're going to be motivated and oriented towards growth, you really have to be less sensitive to failure. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the podcast that you're talking about, the the quote that really stuck out at me is people that were, this is from Kyra Bobinet, Dr. Kyra Bobinet, people who succeed at changing their behaviors have one thing in common. And that's that they think like designers, which means that they practice or experiment with something. And if that something fails them at some point, instead of thinking they failed, they iterate, they tweak, they tinker with it. And that's what sets them apart. So these people that have lower levels of um, activation in their habenula are able to not see failure as permanent. They instead just take that failure as feedback and they iterate and they change and they tweak just all those things that she said. And it's uh, what, I, what I really liked about what she followed up that quote with is the discussion of it's not a matter of when you're going to fail or if your design or your experiment or whatever is going to fail, but it's the mindset that you choose to adopt knowing that it is going to fail and the ability to tweak and change and try something else, right? So I don't know. I think I think this is this is the mindset. This is the name of the mindset that we've we've probably been doing and wanting to adopt. But um, I, I like the way that's packaged. How about you? Yeah. Well, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier with our different majors and behavior development. Yeah. Um, that because we are oriented towards that being more desirable for long lasting, uh, long term performance and improvement the our the way we were educated did not set us up to have all the tools to navigate that right versus the kind of certifications you usually get 
is around what kind of exercises to use, how to program it, all of these. And so there's not a lot of probably negative outcomes. There's probably not a lot of mistakes made in that process because it's fairly straightforward. But now we move into this other space where we say we need to have this synergy and this, this, uh, this compounding effect between someone's inner self and their outer physical body where they find um they find a new level of what they want to be and and so i i think we to to even venture down that path you have to be okay with the fact that this is going to be really tough to figure out right and messy very messy very messy yeah and that's so um I wish we could like do some testing here and see like what, what kind of activation do we have? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that this is part of the reason why I wanted to do this is because I would, I would venture a guess that I actually have pretty high activation in my habenula. I think in the past, in the past, I think that I have been um, resistant to change. I very much like control. Um, I'm not willing. I'm not scared to admit that. I know Didn't your whole environment growing up basically lend itself to being super dynamic. You, you would think, but I think almost it's an interesting psychology experiment in that maybe because it was so d- dynamic, I sought control in other places. For those who don't know, just kind of what Travis and I are talking about is that um, I grew up in the Silicon Valley. Both my parents are entrepreneurs. Um, I came in you know, I grew up in a household where my dad probably worked for 10, 12 different companies during my childhood. My mom works for herself. She's, she's a consultant. She works for a ton of different companies. And I don't know, maybe because of that, I, uh, I did grasp and seek areas where I could really like lock in and and try to control things. I don't know. Hmm. Any examples? Um, well, when I first got into strength and conditioning, um, I think I very much latched on to the idea of, oh, I like that there's this very set way of programming and I can control the technique of my athletes by being very specific with my cueing. And I didn't actually allow for the human dynamical system part of this to really take place. I kind of just thought of them as machines that I could program into better performance. And I think that's where I am realizing my error was and am now trying to learn and change and and adapt. You know, you, when we started talking about this topic, you immediately went to business models and resources that were not in our field at all. What, what, where did you go? Yeah, I, to kind of go back to what I just talked about, I think naturally I, I tend to think of things in the way that I was raised, which is in that very Silicon Valley entrepreneurship kind of mindset. And, you know, I, I am back here. I spent some time away in the Midwest and learn some other things, but I'm now back in the heart of the Silicon Valley. And it's so apparent, you know, being around these people and even conversations you overhear and things that happen at the dinner table, words like iterative are thrown around like 
Mm. you know, and and or and but it's the hot topic because here, if you're a business, any business brand, whatever, you have to be agile. You have to think quickly. You have to pivot your product, your organization at any time. Startups, small things, those are the fad right now. So, I mean, I related this idea of iteration, not so much to like psychology and behavior change, but more to the way that a product and a business operates. For example, um, here in the Silicon Valley, everything is constantly undergoing iteration. The best example I can think of is your iPhone, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't, we don't even bat an eye when they tell us that there's a software update, right? It's constantly iterating. It's constantly changing. It's constantly improving itself because you know, Apple and the manufacturers of our phones, they knew that they had to push out a product that was imperfect. And that was, you know, the idea. They wanted it to be imperfect. They didn't, they wanted to know what consumers were going to want. And then they would fix and provide those features later on. So we are kind of, um, we've all lived in this world where a lot of the products and things that we interact with are in constant beta phases. But we don't treat other things like, in our case, our athletes or our programs like they're in a beta phase. We are not as willing, or at least I wasn't as willing, to adapt and change on the fly. So I don't know. I, I think that there's a huge amount of transfer. Does that does that make sense? Uh, it it does. I mean, they're they're completely different fields. They're they're totally different domains. I mean. You know, we we have wins and losses that are posted on a schedule and, you you know, you, you have a ranking and there is it's literally this like infinite loop of <laughs> what have you done lately? I think it is interesting that with technology, you have this idea of an update that just has become, exp- I mean, I remember um, they weren't, it didn't seem like they were as frequent as they are now, maybe. And it was a big deal. And you're right. Now it's, I had a notice on my phone today that when you overnight while your phone is charging, it's going to get updated, just letting you know. And it's like, I mean, you might as well just be telling me that, you know, it's the garbage is going to get picked up today, you know? Well, so let's, let's talk about that. Like the idea of an update or why Apple or really any update software that we have on our computer, why, why would they do that? Right. And instead of, waiting until the product is perfect and then putting it out to market, why would they put out an imperfect product? I mean, to me, the idea is it's never going to be perfect and you don't know what it's going to look like in five years. So let's put out an imperfect but functional product, get feedback, see what people think about it, and then change and adapt and adjust. And it kind of combats this sunk cost fallacy, which is when you get so deep in an idea that you can't pivot, right? If you stay shallower and you make just these small changes and then you put it out and you see how it interacts, it's okay if you fail. You can kind of scratch that idea. You can go to the next one. And that's a huge key topic that that we could apply to our field. Well, I got to think also like, <clears throat> the sooner you can get a product out there, the sooner you're also not just getting feedback, but you're actually getting some money. That you can reinvest into the next. I mean, it's a race. It's a race with no business. It's a business. Absolutely. (laughs) 
when I think of iterative mindset, I think of just making these constant changes, always trying to get better and adapt and and shift to you know whatever needs to be done. But to me, it almost kind of feels like there's no structure to that necessarily. It's like whatever I think is best at the time mm-hmm. is where I'm going to make that that change. And there's a concept here in the Silicon Valley that I like, which maybe is a layer above iterative mindset, which is this idea of a lean startup, which if you've never heard that term is essentially the idea that you conduct frequent experiments based on hypotheses that you have that you'll be able to put out into the market and hopefully then get customer feedback and then have some sort of metric that you're measuring to know whether or not it worked or didn't work. So it's like these series of little experiments that you can kind of put out there, get data back, and then make decisions based on those things. So it's a, it's a more structured approach to an iterative mindset instead of just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks. If, if I was constantly iterating in the weight room with athletes, I would want to know, was that effective? And I think about, well, how would I know if it's effective? And if that means getting data on how much stronger they were getting, how much faster they were getting, and, and that required us to do testing every Wednesday, that would be such a counterproductive process, right? And I think about how some of the conversations recently that I've had with, with people in my life around uh, privacy, around uh, how, how the Google and Facebook and, and whoever else is collecting information to uh, advertise to you and to help gear your searches a certain way. And I think that's actually just so good because, <laughs> because it's so non-intrusive. It's non-invasive. They're collecting lots and lots of data and I don't even know they're doing it. And so therefore I'm not, I don't, it doesn't bother me that they're now, if they knocked on my door every day and they said, can you tell me what you did all day and which sites you went to and what you did? No way. Right. I'm less likely to use a piece of technology. If it, if I have to go through a whole song and dance every time I use it. Right. So it's like ease of use or, uh, the, the, the terms escaping me, but it's like the, the perfect situation is if you can iterate and you can gather data without other people being fatigued from feedback fatigue or data collection fatigue, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that, I think you're onto something and I love that um, idea of, is there a way that we can gather feedback without people really knowing that we're gathering yeah, feedback? Exactly. But all, I would also push back on the idea that I don't think the data needs to come from quantitative metrics always, and especially not in our field. I think that that's where we get stuck a lot of times is we wait for the data to tell us, yes, that was the right thing. We're dealing with humans. They are the best sources of feedback we could possibly have. And yeah, there's an idea that there's some feedback fatigue, I'm sure. But in small conversations, couldn't you say, hey, how'd you feel after that workout, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't take what they say as you know, gospel necessarily, but there's some truth there for sure. And especially if it's not regular and they're not expecting, oh, on Wednesday, I'm going to get asked how I felt about the workout, right? But rather, hey, we tried something new today. How'd you feel about that? 
right? Like that's even feedback, right? And because well, we're dealing about, with human behavior change. When you're, when you're self-reporting, if, if you have a sheet of paper or an iPad thing you have to fill out every day that gets passed to you, or if it's just in conversation, so you have two choices. One, it's, it's, uh, it's very impersonal and it's very um, systematic. And the other is very personal and less formal. And it's just, hey, how are you feeling today? Those two have a totally different, I think, uh, um, experience by the user in terms of which I would invite and which one I would just feel like I'm obligated and I have to do, right? Absolutely. So like when, when you're using your phone, sorry, but so like when you're using your phone and you're going through Instagram and you're liking things, like you are literally giving them information while doing something you're enjoying and you're inviting. Like I'm voluntarily doing this, right? Which is a totally different experience than, uh, hey, sorry to call you during dinner, but do you have a minute to answer these questions? I mean, it's so interesting how we just always like go back to our field, isn't it? Like I'm, I'm thinking about like, oh man, like we started talking about coaching again, but that's, I mean, that's great because these things are, they're creating ideas, right? Which is the whole point of what we're doing, but to kind of, to circle back and kind of put a wrap a bow around lean startup, even though it's, we could rabbit hole on this topic for days, years, or at least I could, um, you know, I think, I think the idea here is that instead of waiting till that we have that perfectly written program, instead of waiting till we think we're ready, can we just put it out there and try it and, mm-hmm. you know, have, have an hypothesis, right? Like I'm doing this because I want to see if this does X, right? Mm-hmm. And then receive the feedback, whether it's data, whether it's a conversation with an athlete, and then be willing to change. That's the hardest part is being willing to accept that it didn't work. And you know what? That's okay. Because I'm going to go back and I'm going to iterate. I'm going to change it. And we're going to try it again. But it's this like, this idea of this minimally viable product. It's it's just good enough to put out there. I, I love this quote about what a minimally viable product should be. Um, I can't remember who said it. So this is going to, I apologize to whoever is the originator of this quote, but if it doesn't embarrass you, you waited too long to put it out there. Hmm. And I don't know if that's necessarily as drastic as we need to get with our programming, but it's okay to put something out before it's been validated by research. Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, what you thought about this idea in terms of why we're doing this podcast. We kind of touched on it, but instead of talking about training, how do we apply this idea to the podcast? Boy. Well, I think we probably got it out there early enough because I've definitely been embarrassed by it. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed. Every time I put this out there, I'm like, oh God, what's my mom going to say about this one? Yeah. Hopefully we are able to stay with it long enough and get it to the point where we feel that um, we are not uh, defined by our first few episodes. That would be nice. Uh, no, I, I think it's actually a really important, uh, concept that iteration is starting with what you know is not going to be the end. It's not going to look like it is. It's going to look in the end, but let's, let's be vulnerable enough or let's be open enough or let's be 
uh, I hate to use courageous because I don't want to sound courageous, but like part of it is, is like, yeah, when you know people are going to be able to tell when it sucks. And if you're, if you can't separate you from that feedback, it's going to be, it's going to feel really shitty. We're like the epitome of we know no, we know just enough to be dangerous. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, but, we definitely are over our skis, as they say. We're like, but is that okay? I mean, can you do a podcast if you don't know everything? I don't know. We probably shouldn't be the judges of that. <laughs> but what we're trying to create is sort of like a one bite appetizer, mm-hmm. maybe. Right. Which is like, hey, there's this incredibly delicious thing on the menu and we really want to try it. We're not sure we're ready to order it. We don't really know what's in it. But you know what? Oh, man, we really want to try it. And we hope that the people that are listening could maybe get something from hearing us try it. Yeah. You know what I really wish? I really wish we had both taken, like you said earlier, a, I don't know if it would have been an fMRI or an MRI of mm-hmm. our brain and looked at or, the habenula activity prior uh, to starting this podcast and after uh, we're 99 episodes in, because I really think that would be a fascinating downtrend in activity. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to go and look at some of these people like a Tim Ferriss, you know, or a Rich Roll or whoever you want to say and uh, listen to their first five episodes. Absolutely. I mean, they probably still all had like 15 people working on the episode and oh, take, yeah. take sound quality aside. <laughs> like, don't judge already, me on that. They were already um, uh, bestsellers. They were already, you know, extremely accomplished. But Absolutely. Well, before we, you know, wrap this up, do you have any counterpoints? I mean, you know, we, we, we always talk about these cool new concepts, right? We're like, oh yeah, try iterative mindset. It's great. But mm-hmm. Is there ever a time where an iterative mindset isn't great or where iteration is not a positive trait? Well, I was thinking just yesterday, I had a conversation with um, these two good friends of mine. And they are uh, in the, the architectural design field. So they're very outside the box. They're trendy. They are, uh, they're not really paying attention to what everybody else is doing. They're kind of just doing their own, what, what they think is good taste to them. And people are paying them a ton of money to do it. And I asked them that question. I said, what do you think of, what comes to mind when, um, when I say iteration or iterative? And they each gave their responses. And it, it was surprising because to me, I only thought of it in a positive light. And they thought where their minds went were actually not necessarily a positive association. It was one of the things they said was, uh, it makes me think about reiterating that I have to reiterate this over and over and over again because somebody's not getting it or um, an iteration is almost just like hey here's every color that you could do this in and I don't need that I, I don't need extra choices I don't need more noise maybe I just I need to keep getting it better but I already know the direction it's going I don't need things that are gonna sidetrack me so part of it would be how you see iteration might be important. So um, I, before we move on from that comment, I just Googled really quickly um, iteration. And the first definition that comes up is the repetition of a process or utterance 
which is if you had listened to our last two episodes on differential learning, <laughs> it's yeah. it's the technically, you know, by this yeah. standard, the opposite of what we were trying to get there, repetition without a repetition. This is yeah. literally the purpose of repetition. But I will say the other definition of it is a new version of a piece of computer hardware or software. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's less on the radical when we were talking uh, about descent and whether something's radical or whether something's just like continuing on the same, it's, it's a, you know, evolution of, of an idea. I would say iteration is probably more of the small change evolution than it is radical. Cause when you say the word pivot in the, um, in the business discussion you were having earlier, I think of pivot as a big change, like a 90 degree turn. Is that how it's supposed to be meant? Do you know? I think it depends on the context. I was thinking of it in basketball. Okay. Well, you've, at that point, you're stopped. <laughs> yeah, you can't move. You got to keep one foot in this world and one foot in the outside world, right? Which is lateral thinking. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think if there are any other counterpoints. Um, I mean, you know, changing just for the sake of changing isn't probably good. I think you have to have better. You have to, you have to be actually solving something. Um, but also, I was going to say that sometimes we take action too soon on things when if we actually let it breathe a little bit longer, like, like you say, sleep on it, right? Sometimes if you, if you just need an idea to marinate a little bit longer in the production phase, maybe rolling it out and getting all this feedback, you could actually come to the same conclusion with some good discussion and reflection with other experts or people who you trust. I don't know. Yeah, I really like that idea. For me, the, the main takeaway from all of this it kind of reflects on what your counterpoint was, which was there's two schools of thought, right? There's almost like a paralysis by analysis. And then there's a, just do it. Done's better than perfect. Just throw it out there. And maybe this idea of a lean startup is the most functional for our purposes in that have a, have a goal or a hypothesis that you want to test. Come up with an experiment that tests it. A small one. Make this small. Bite size. Put it out there. Let it marinate. Let it sink in. Get feedback, change. Don't be afraid to do that. But it doesn't need to be this all or nothing because I kind of see the the paralysis by analysis and the just just do it as kind of being the black and white, and we're here in the gray. Yeah. Uh, the final thought was, uh, and I think it probably goes back to what we were just saying. But um, when I was reading Legacy, the story about the All Blacks rugby team, one of their one of the the uh, I don't think it was a chapter title, but it was one of the pillars of the, of the story in the book was change while you're at the top or while you're in the lead. Like while you're at the top of your game, make iteration and, and make changes that make it harder for other people to just create a, a solution to how to beat you or how to take you down or how to leapfrog you because um, so I would use this analogy with our team when we were 
when we would like have a comfortable lead in our league standings or something, um, or we had put ourselves in a position where it could be really easy to relax and to get comfortable is we would say, if somebody's chasing us and they're a block behind us, and every time we look back, they're getting closer and closer, that's not going to be the situation that we want. If we have a block lead, and the reason we have that is because we're ahead and we're, we're faster or whatever, and we're chasing something that's a block in front of us, then nobody's ever going to be able to catch us. And so the problem is, is if we're not chasing something in front of us, even when you're in the front, even when you're in the lead, um, then you're, you're going to be more likely to get caught from behind, make mistakes. You know, the, the structure of your success is more likely to crumble. Um, so I think that's where, like with our program, having built it over 20 years, we are always trying to iterate because if we don't, we're going to be dead. We're going to be caught. It's so funny that you brought that example up. I was talking to a good friend of ours, Molly Benetti, yesterday, and we were talking about that exact graphic that you just described in Legacy, which is if you're at the top of the sine curve, right? Mm -hmm. That's when you need to make the change. That's when you need to make the kind of almost feels like this radically uncomfortable thing, even though you're at the top of your game, that's when you make that jump because otherwise what's waiting for you on that, on the downslope is, you know, being comfortable. It's, um, complacency. It's all of those things that we're avoiding, right? It's getting caught if you're being chased. So even when you're at the top and you think that everything's going well, that's when you need to most reevaluate, most make a change, most iterate. So the counterpoint to that would be the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So maybe that's where the two ends of the spectrum are. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to make a change when everything looks like it's working well. But I would argue that maybe you don't make a change, but you at least test to see if you need to make a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so I would say in, in our field, one of the things that we can do is we can really help people get better and stronger and healthier. But there also are also mistakes that we could make that would actually injure them or make them actually go the opposite direction of the way they want to go if you're not making good choices with how you're training them. And um, so along that idea, if I'm wanting to try to do something different, I have to first make sure that that's something that's not going to uh, be unsafe or create, you know, create a problem that wasn't there to begin with, you know? If I can, if I can make, that's, I think that's why iteration should be small because the smaller it is, the less likely it is that the impact's going to be so big. And over time, when you're making the small changes that you want to change, and you make several of those, that equates to a big change in the end, right? Absolutely. I love it. I think this has been a great conversation. I feel like we could keep going, which is a mark of any good podcast hopefully it was interesting to listen to um is there is there anything else that we want to mention before we sign off for the day uh no just continue to to challenge anyone who's listening to engage in the conversation with us reaching out email or other social media outlets to um to let us know what you think and how how we can make it better like travis said we're always just trying to get a little bit better. 
and uh, you know, hopefully we're doing that. So all the feedback is encouraged and accepted and, and valued. And we hope to see you guys on the next episode. You heard the man hit us up on social media or via email, leave us a review, subscribe, do all of the things, but most importantly, find a way to ride the gray.